is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history in 1913, Green Bay Packers legendary coach Vince Lombardi was born. I'll tell you something, Leroy, you're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there! Get him out of there, will you? Hey, what about that now? Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, and all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School, and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard. Had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouth full of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself in full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay, head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. 
Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something, instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all that's necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly. And he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task, he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business, and because of the growth of the business, and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs, and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. And there you have it, the life of Vince Lombardi, born on this day in history in 1913. This is Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes to us from John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students, and that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them, but it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night and we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is coach Ted Venegas. Hey coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach, he's also a U.S. history teacher. And he knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, no huddle, line up again, and set hike onto the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and it's killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. He said of football, 
as in a football game. The principle to follow is, hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term, the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad. But his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection, but that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic, and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, Take me to the auditorium! And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, It takes more than that to kill a bull moose. When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as, Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough, manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. 
No, not the prohibition of alcohol, the prohibition of football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about the brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in an advanced societies like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football. And a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost, which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, uh, but others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburb of Chicago. And that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football. More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. 
and Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things that you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, that it, it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as assistant secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, he raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west, and he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and T.R. was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right. Football. So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, TR used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian Ingracia. In October of 1905, he calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. 
After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really pushed university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement, were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue. And without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he is calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back. He rolls right. The man down the middle. He sees it. Passes up. It's caught. Caught for the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. And great job on that. And that's John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School. And that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students. And my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors are this days in history. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought 
prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt story, football story, here on Our American Story. American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we love the intersection of music and story, and the story of a song. And by the way, you can go to Our American Network and hear all of our stories of a song. This one is about a Beach Boy gem called Good Vibrations. Let's hear the guitars, please, in Is it possible for a song to be simultaneously revered and underappreciated? If so, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys falls into this category. Okay, that's fine. Let's make it. Take one. Hey, let's go, man. Here we go. Play hard and strong all the way. Music critics have celebrated the song, voting it number one in Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time and number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song has been cited as a forerunner to the Beatles' A Day in the Life in 1967 and Queens' Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975. Good Vibrations is composed by Brian Wilson with lyrics by Mike Love. Released on October 10, 1966, just five months after their revolutionary opus, Pet Sounds, the single was an immediate critical and commercial hit topping record charts in several countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. Over 90 hours of tape was consumed during the dozen-plus sessions across four different studios. This process was reflected in the song's several dramatic shifts in key, texture, instrumentation, and mood. Good Vibrations was the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Here's the story of Good Vibrations, beginning with music journalist and, as a side note, the man credited with giving Jimi Hendrix the idea of setting fire to his guitar, Keith Altham. 
Good Vibrations was just the, the, the perfect encapsulation of what he was doing with pet sounds, I suppose. It was a mixture of all those sounds and things that he had accumulated for pet sounds and put into a condensed version for a single. Here's Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston. I think if Good Vibrations had been on pet sounds, uh, we would probably own the galaxy by now. You know, I mean, what do you do after Good Vibrations, if, and if, especially it's on that, if it's on that album? But uh, it didn't work out that way. Here's Brian Wilson. I managed to get pet sounds with Tony, and then I said to Tony, I'm going to write a song all about Good Vibrations. My mother told me when I was a kid that dogs pick up vibrations from people, and if they feel threatened, they bark. Yeah, I'm picking up good vibrations. Mike, Mike came up. I said, "This song's called Good Vibrations," and he goes, "I'm picking up good vibrations." He wrote that bass line. Here's Mike Love. Good vibrations was done in sections at different studios. It took me six weeks for to get, have it produced. Here's recording engineers Bruce Botnick and Mark Linnett. This is definitely Gold Star. Because uh, when, when it makes the cut. I, I can definitely hear the sound of Sunset Sound on the drums. It's much drier and not as roomy. One, two, three, four. And this part, the, the cellos and the theremin are overdubbed. Brian also pulled out a large portion of the, of the three track. There's a piano in there that that he pulled out as much as he could. And again, mixed it down to mono. And and this is the same verse from Gold Star. Did he repeat the verse? Yeah, I believe and so. made a copy. Yeah. And the choruses are definitely repeated. Yeah. And here's the piano. And a juice harp. That was an overdub. And finally, there was a composite of, uh, that became the actual track to Good Vibrations. And he gave it to me in the form of an acetate, which I was able to play. And uh, I actually dictated the uh, lyrics to Good Vibrations uh, on the way to the studio to my then wife, Suzanne. And uh, I. I wrote this poem, I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair, that kind of thing. And I came up with, I'm picking up good vibrations, she's giving me the excitations, to, to paraphrase the, the bass part, which is... So it was, I came up with the words and that hook, and Brian did the brilliant track, so it was a true collaboration. Here's A&R executive at Capitol Records, Carl Ingeman. Good Vibration was a record that took him a long time to make in between uh, different albums and things like that. And to me, Good Vibrations is perhaps the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Well, the, the night we cut Good Vibrations, the, the guys had a really lot of fun, you know. They really liked it. They said, Brian, this is going to be a number one record. I, I love the colorful Let's take a walk through this number one hit. The first verse is built around an ethereal descending chord progression in E-flat minor. I hear the sound of a gentle wind 
on the wind that lifts her perfume through the air. And then we hit the first chorus. I'm picking up the chorus starts in G-flat major, and then with each repetition, the chorus climbs upward, providing a counterpoint to the verse's descending chord progression. Then, we go back to the verse. Check out the bass line. Listen to how high it is. Softly smile, I know she must be kind. Instead of just playing the root of the main chord in the song, the bass is actually creating a counter melody. At the time, hardly anyone was using bass lines in this way. I'm picking up After this verse, we return to the chorus, carried by a new instrument called an electrotheremin that inhabited the good vibrations and the Beach Boys' patented harmony. Then we hit the first of two interludes, or episodic digressions. This section is greeted with a sudden tape splice which is a clear edit between two sessions that were recorded at different times in the studios. This part of the song might normally be called a bridge, but instead of cutting back to the chorus like a bridge might, we cut into the second part of the episodic digression. This tape splice is even more dramatic than the first. Just as we're floating through the air, a five-part harmony wakes us back up as we punch into the chorus. This chorus starts in the reverse direction, beginning in B-flat and working down back to where we started out in G-flat. A series of harmonies, juddering cellos, and the electrotheremin carry us out. Good Vibrations was dubbed a pocket symphony, and its production elements and symphonic structures would be echoed in dozens of songs in the decades to come. So, whenever you're talking about the greats in rock, be sure to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a little love. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and for anyone who thinks... The Beach Boys were lightweights. Well, think again after hearing that story. And by the way, listening to our story on multi-track recordings and the battle between the Beatles and the Beach Boys for production ascendance. And my goodness, it was the Beach Boys who affected the Beatles. 
and not the other way around. And by the way, to hear our stories of a song, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There you will find the story of George on my mind. Light my fire by the doors. Jesus, take the wheel. There goes my life. Why me, my Lord, by Chris Christopherson, and so many others. Combining always the arts of storytelling and music here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. stories and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to business science and everything in between and we love to tell your stories send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and our own alex cortez loves to bring us powerful stories about human freedom and the absence of it and here's his latest Peter Wolf grew up in the wake of World War II in Germany. In what was then a divided country, the Western nations of Britain, America, and France oversaw West Germany, and the Soviet Union oversaw the East, where Peter was. I enjoyed bicycling, and I found this old bicycle that I fixed up. I took that bike one time pretty far out in the country and you were not allowed to travel too far away from your home without proper paperwork. So all of a sudden this car pulled up, a bunch of Russian soldiers in it, and they interrogated me where I was going. And I said I was just going for a ride. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to and that I needed to go back home. And they followed me. So this was my first encounter where police and soldiers stopped me from doing something that I enjoyed doing. And then later on they told my mother that I had gone too far. My mother scolded me in front of them, but privately she said, look, don't get these soldiers or the police upset. It's, it, you don't want to upset them. And I didn't quite understand all of that. You know, I was maybe 11 years old at the time. So it was very confusing to me why we were being so confined. In school, we were always told that Germany was a German democratic republic, that we were free to vote, free to do anything we wanted to. Of course, I would go with my mother to vote. And the process was, there was a man sitting on a desk, and my mother would lean over on that desk, and she would put her signature next to the person that she wanted to vote for. And she told me that if she put the signature for the other person, who was not the favorite candidate, that the man in front of the desk would of course see that and make a mark 
in another book. And that was the book where you don't want to be in there because you would be ostracized and punished wherever possible since everything was controlled by the government. Everything. So they had total control. You were allowed to vote and you could choose which way you wanted to vote. But if you chose wrong, then you would be punished for it. And people were very much afraid all the time. So I was getting these conflicting dialogues, one at school, one at home. And you like to believe your parents, but of course you spend an awful lot of time at school and you really didn't know. You simply did not know what was true and what was not. It was very conflicting. Peter's parents knew that they wanted to illegally escape to West Germany and then to America. But young Peter wasn't sure he was conflicted. We had relatives in America and we had some pictures that we saw that they had mailed to us. And we saw America as something that was absolutely unbelievable. The fact that you could own a car, drive a car, you didn't have to have paperwork to go from one state to another. It was just unreal. And of course, in school, we were told that people were very oppressed in that country. It was mandatory for us to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a book written about America by an American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And that book portrays black Americans as living in squalor. And this is exactly what we were taught America was all about. Anything else we saw about America was fake propaganda. And that's what we believed. For the Soviets to use the sin of slavery to downplay their killing of at least 13 million of their own citizens is pretty rich. Meanwhile, Peter Wolf's family was about to become pretty poor. We had saved up a lot of money carefully so that we could use that money to bribe our way into the West. In order for the government to keep people back in East Germany, one day the government decided to negate all the savings that people had by simply changing the currency. They didn't tell anyone about it. You had a certain amount of time, one day, to transfer your money in the bank to a new currency which looked different but if you had too much money that you had hoarded or saved up, the government, since you were not a good communist by having so much money, uh, declared it worthless. And we never really took it. Nobody took it to the bank if they had more than they were supposed to have. So we had a few hundred marks perhaps uh, in the bank that was converted and the rest was lost. That money became worthless. And at that point, our family was very distraught over it. Peter's dad was so distraught 
Thaddy ended his life. And that was a very traumatic experience. And when we come back, more of the Wolf's family story and what a story it is, not told enough here in this country in our schools, but told here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Peter Wolf's story. His family is hoping to escape Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany and escape to the West and the Free West. This is before they put up the Berlin Wall, but it was still harrowing. If all three of us would have left, it would have caused too much suspicion. I was left behind at some neighbors, and my mother took my sister and worked herself towards the West German border. They were caught, and they were detained for a night at a soldier barracks. Now here was my mother and my 15-year-old sister. In the morning, they were let go and told to go back to East Germany. Instead, my mother went for a ways and then made a U-turn and snuck into the forest trying to get across the border. At that point, the soldiers saw them again and started shooting after them. So they were actually running, the two of them, across the border with soldiers shooting at them. But they made it across and my mother stayed in West Germany for about a week and eventually left my sister in West Germany with hopes that she would make her way over to America. She was 15 years old. She left her with some friends and said her goodbyes and came back. And when she came back, my mother was interrogated by the local police for several days by the Stasi asked why my sister didn't come back. And my mother simply said that she didn't want to come back. And at that point, my mother was ostracized as a traitor. She was given different work assignments that were much more difficult. It was made very clear to her that my prospects would not include high school. I would have to go to work at some factory as an apprentice. A mark was put in her passport that would prevent her from going anywhere near the border, anywhere closer to 20 kilometers, because of course people thought that she might want to escape as well. It was made very, very clear to her that she would be put in prison 
many people that we knew who had tried that would actually go to the gulags in Russia, be transferred into Siberia, and never be heard of again. The children that were left behind were often put into orphanages and then properly raised by the communist government. So that would have been my fate if my mother were caught anywhere near the border. She had to get rid of that mark in her passport, but she didn't know what the mark was. So one day she spilled some ink on the passport. And then she said, oh no, how terrible. And she would hold the passport underneath the water, trying to get rid of the ink. And she would put this thing on in front of me and I didn't know any different. And she would pour the water over the passport and of course the passport got all wet at that point. So she turned the gas burner on and trying to dry up the passport after it got all wet. Well, lo and behold, the passport caught fire and some of the pages burned up. Well, this was all very carefully orchestrated because she wanted to uh, burn up the pages that had the mark in there. She knew that some of those pages had the mark, but she just didn't know what it was or where it was. It was a weekend and the local police station was already closed where you would normally get a new passport. We would go to the larger city nearby, Leipzig, and there she went into the police station and asked for another passport because it was close to Christmas time and she wanted to travel to a relative somewhere else in East Germany. Of course, the police officer said, sure, lady, no problem, just go to your local police station and they'll do it. They'll give you a new passport. And she says, no, 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 there's no time and I need to go there in the next few days. And the police said, and said, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, at that point, my mother had a tantrum. She just started wailing and crying and shouting, and I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but the policeman got all crazy about it, and my mother got crazy about it, and he called one of his superiors over, and finally, after my mother wouldn't budge, the superior said, look, let's, let's just process her a temporary passport until she can next week go and get her normal passport from her local police station. So they processed a temporary passport and the intent was for my mother to get that from that distant police station since they didn't really know her and wouldn't put that mark in that the local police station would surely put back in. So she ended up getting it. My mother had really orchestrated this very carefully. I was completely in the dark. I thought all of this was real. And the reason she did that was to shield me from maybe divulging if they asked me what was going on. And this was, of course, about four years after my sister had escaped. I remember very clearly Christmas Eve I was playing with my friends downstairs, it was winter time, and I came up for lunch. And as I came up for lunch, in the bedroom on the bed was a small suitcase all packed up. And I was curious as to what that suitcase was all about. 
My mother had made me some lunch, and she said, Now, Peter, I want you to be very careful what you say to your friends, but I want you to say goodbye to them after lunch. Go back downstairs and say goodbye. Tonight, we're leaving. I said, leaving? We're leaving our home. We're going, hopefully, to meet up with your sister. And she asked me also to put a toy. She said, pick your favorite toy and put it in the suitcase. I had a little electric train, train set, and I put that in there. Uh, I went back downstairs, said goodbye to my friends, didn't tell anyone anything of our plans. My mother had purchased a Christmas tree. She had decorated the Christmas tree so from the outside it looked as if we were celebrating Christmas as usual. And this was to avoid any suspicion with the neighbors. So, in the evening, she took me and the little suitcase, and we walked about two blocks to the local streetcar. We took the streetcar from our little town to the nearer, larger town, and there we boarded a train to Berlin. In Berlin, we got off the train and quickly went to a subway. In the subway, we bought a ticket that took us from East Berlin, where we were, to another section in East Berlin. But there was one stop that the subway would make in West Berlin. The intent was to get off there, but our ticket was actually took us back into the eastern sector. Now my mother, I didn't appreciate all of this, but my mother was taking a huge gamble by getting on that subway. If the identification in her passport included the mark, she was obviously closer than 20 kilometers from the border now, and she would have been arrested. So when we got on the subway, it was a moment of no return for her. I, I just can't even imagine what, what she committed to. But she did, and we got into the subway and there were a few other people in there. Train started moving. Pretty soon, the train got to the station just before the West Berlin station. When the doors opened, Russian soldiers came on, one in the front, one in the back with machine guns and an officer would walk in and interrogate various people for their paperwork. And what a scene. Peter Wolf is setting up his story, a story of Soviet totalitarianism and totalitarianism of all sorts. It's still around us everywhere in this world. Peter Wolf's story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of Peter Wolf's escape and his family's escape from East Germany and Soviet-controlled East Germany with his mom. They're now on a train making their escape, and suddenly Russian soldiers appear on board. There was a couple that sat in front of us, and the Russian sergeant asked for their paperwork, looked through it, found it to be okay, and started walking towards us. At that point, the couple gave a big sigh of relief, and they smiled at each other. The Russian sergeant in Russian mumbled, well, I wonder what they're smiling about. And of course, he mumbled it in Russian, but I understood what he was saying. And he was looking at me, and he realized that I understood what he was saying. And he said, Baruski, do you speak Russian? I said, da. And at that point, my mother, who was holding my hand, started to squeeze my hand because she told me not to say a word to anyone. And here this Russian sergeant started talking to me. And he said to me in Russian, I wonder why these people are so happy and smiling. And I responded in Russian, I don't know. My mother didn't speak Russian, so she didn't know what I was saying. And here I was talking to the guy that was going to interrogate us. She was pale. The Russian soldier said, well, we better find out what they're so happy about. And he motioned to one of his soldiers, and they came and escorted the couple out. They never came back. At that point, he took the paperwork that my mother had, and he continued to talk to me in Russian. I told him about a pen pal I had in Moscow, and he complimented me on how well I spoke Russian. And he looked through the paperwork, eventually gave it back to my mother, and moved on. Of course, we didn't sigh. I knew that much. He went on and interrogated some other people, and eventually the Russian soldier left. The doors closed. The train started moving again. We stopped at the next stop, which was West Berlin. The doors opened. Just before they closed, my mother grabbed the little suitcase, grabbed me, and we snuck out the door. Doors closed. Here we were in West Berlin. We made it. My mother asked the local policeman where to go to, directed us to go to a uh, fugitive camp. And when we got there, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people all with a little suitcase. Uh, Many of them holding on to their children, having the same intention that we had. There were so many, in fact, that there wasn't enough room in the fugitive camp. We were put on a bus and taken to an old factory. There were about 100 bunk beds in a big room, and here it was Christmas Eve. There were children crying, mothers consoling their children. The men usually were snoring like crazy. And I remember crying myself to sleep because it was Christmas Eve and I didn't get any presents. (laughs) 
and I felt pretty sorry for myself. Every day, the heads of household would have to go from the old factory to the fugitive camp in a bus after they handled their paperwork there in order to process their immigration to West Germany. In the evening, the bus would come back and people would be reunited. Usually it was the husband that would leave and then in the evening come back. My mother would also be on that bus all the time, so it was just her and I. One day, one of those bus drivers, apparently, was paid off by the East Germans and instead of taking the entire load of the bus to the fugitive camp, they went back to East Germany and soldiers and police were waiting for them. We found out that all those heads of households had been recaptured. It was probably one of the most anguishing experiences I have ever experienced. The mothers and children left behind, they didn't know what to do. They had given up everything, and now what should they do? Several of them had befriended other families, and they gave their older children to those other families to take to the West. And the mother and the younger children would go back to the East. Who knows what would happen to them? The love that the wives had for their husbands, even though their life in East Germany would be miserable, they still knew that they wanted to be with them instead of just leaving them behind. And to leave your oldest child with strangers, hoping for the best for them knowing that you would probably never see them again. And I still have trouble understanding how those people dealt with that. We had legal documentation to immigrate to America, and we bought a one-way ticket on the MS Berlin, which was one of the last immigrant boats to leave from Germany to New York. It was a 10-day journey. We probably had the bunk in the lowest compartment, way down in the bowels of the boat. And on the ninth day, the captain told us that if we wanted to get up early in the morning, we may be able to see the Statue of Liberty as we came into New York. And I probably got up at two or three in the morning and tiptoed up on the top of the boat. And there was not a sound up there. No one was up there. It was foggy, it's misty, just a real serene environment. Tiptoed up and I was trying to work my way towards the front of the boat and hung on to various railings. When all of a sudden I bumped into someone and then I bumped into someone else and I didn't think anybody was up there. And as I got closer to the front of the boat, I realized that instead of me being one of the first people to be up there, I was 
probably one of the last people. Hundreds of people were pressed against the railing, straining their eyes, wanting to see that Statue of Liberty. It represents hope, freedom, and liberty to all these immigrants. Hardly any of them spoke the same language. And I kind of squeezed myself up to the railing. And sure enough, as the mist slowly raised, first you could see the light of the Statue of Liberty and then the statue itself. Not a sound, people were completely quiet. Every time I tell the story, I get very emotional about it. And Peter Wolf was one of the reasons why the Berlin Wall went up. More accurately, he was one of the millions of reasons why up to four million people escaped the communist East to the free West until the Soviets finally said enough and built that wall. When we come back, the rest of Peter Wolf's remarkable journey to his new home. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Peter Wolf's story. His family had escaped Soviet-controlled East Germany, and now they had made their way to, of all places, Chicago. My sister set up an apartment in a community that was about 95% Jewish. And here, this was in the 1960s, not many years after the Second World War, this German family moves in, and I didn't understand, but most of the kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. But it wasn't until uh, some time later when the teacher came to me and she said, Peter, we're going to be looking at a movie today about Germany. And if you don't want to watch that movie, it's okay. And I said, why wouldn't I want to watch it? And she said, well, it shows some bad things that the German people did. And I said, it wasn't me. And she said, okay, you can stay if you want. And I stayed and the movie started playing. I visited Buchenwald concentration camp. And all of a sudden the scene showed these emaciated people in concentration camps and German soldiers. I didn't know what to do. I, I had no comprehension. And the movie depicted that these were mostly Jewish people 
in concentration camps by the Germans. Do believe me when I tell you that the reality was indescribably worse than these pictures. And all of a sudden, I understood <laughs> that my classmates were from Jewish families. Many of them perhaps had lost loved ones in that environment. I had never been taught that before. My mother never talked about it. School in Germany it was never talked about. I was so distraught that I simply got up and ran out of the school. And I think I stayed home for about two weeks. I, I just couldn't face these kids anymore. I, I felt so bad. After about a week or two, Leon Stern came to my apartment and said, Peter, uh, we want you to come back. I said, well, how could you? Look what my people did. And uh, he was very kind. I remember he invited me that evening to his house. And his parents were very, very kind to me and accepted me. Later on, I found out that they too had lost loved ones in Germany. But I felt accepted and I went back to school. And many of the children there then, I think they must have been taught by some of the teachers that it wasn't me that did those things. But many of the children came and uh, befriended me. I was invited to their parties. As a matter of fact, Leon and one particular other fellow, Joe Kaufman, became one of my best friends. I was very anxious to be naturalized. I wanted to be a citizen of America. I embraced America. I wanted to speak English very well. I wanted to be an American. I wanted to do everything American. I had passed my exam, received my naturalization. I took my oath, and when I returned from the naturalization office, Leon greeted me at my school, and he said, hey, let's celebrate a little bit, let's go and have lunch together. So we went to the lunchroom, and lo and behold, when I opened the door, I think the whole school was there. All the classes were let out to celebrate that I became a naturalized citizen. Again, you know, this is a 95% Jewish school, and they all rallied around me that I became a naturalized citizen. A few years ago, I was on a plane ride when I sat next to Michael Reagan, President Reagan's son. It blew my mind, and he explained how he was going to go back to Germany on November 9th, 2009, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. And he was going to dedicate a room of paraphernalia from President Reagan to the museum over there at Checkpoint Charlie. And I said, interesting you should mention Berlin because 50 years ago this year, I escaped through Berlin to come to America. His jaw sort of hung open and he said, 
really? I don't think he believed me, but I told him yes, and I told him I would send him some material, and I did. And a week later, he called me and he said, Peter, I want you to be part of a delegation to go back to Germany this November and be there when I dedicate the room in the Czech Coin Charlie Museum. My son, 29-year-old son, and I, we got a plane ticket and we went back to Germany. This was the first time I went back in 50 years to East Germany. My mother always told me never to write to anyone in East Germany out of fear that they would get in trouble. So I lost all contact with my friends, my relatives, everyone. I visited the fugitive camp that we went to when we escaped, and it was still there. They made a museum out of it. And my son didn't understand that my emotions were very tender when I walked in there because it was just like 50 years had gone by at a blink of an eye. And there's a little statue in front of the fugitive camp of a little bronze suitcase because that is the thing that was common to all those fugitives. We uh, also traveled to my hometown and on the last day in Germany, we were there about 10 days, by coincidence, I touched base with somebody at my hometown who knew somebody that I went to school with. On the 10th day, I called up that lady and she said, yes, I got his number here, call it. So I did, and it was Gunto Titter. And I remember it when I called it and I said, this is Peter, Peter Wolf. And I think he was jumping up and down. He, he just, I could tell on his voice that he must have been jumping up and down for joy to hear my voice. So he said, Peter, if you can, we have a dinner tonight and most of your classmates will be there. Can you come? I said, of course, I'll be there. And we all met and what a reunion it was. Gundo Tittle mentioned to me that they've been meeting almost every year as a class reunion. And he showed me the pamphlet from the previous year. And he said, now, Peter, don't get upset when you look at this. And I said, well, why should I get upset? And I thumbed through it, and at the very end, it said in memorandum, Peter Wolf. In other words, I had died. And I said, what's this? And he said, two years after you left, the communists had told us that you and your sister died in a car accident. And that was to prevent any of us trying to reach out and maybe help escape. And I sort of understood at that point why they all wanted to meet me, of course, to see the ghost of Peter Wolf. <laughs> at the very end, I asked uh, one of them, I said, what was it like to live in East Germany all these years? And the table became very quiet. No one said a word until one person spoke up and he said, Peter, you would have had to live here to know what it was like. 
And then he said, Peter, what was it like to live in America? What do you tell someone what freedom is like? You can't put it into words. So all I could muster was to say, you would have had to live there to know what it was like. And a great job as always, Alex, and great job on the production by Robbie. And thanks to Peter Wolf, and thanks to the victimsofcommunism.org. That's where we got the piece from, victimsofcommunism.org, and you can hear so many other stories there. And by the way, Peter does speeches for them all around the country. Imagine hearing this man and this story at your school. Again, go to victimsofcommunism.org. And when people talk about places like Cuba, places where you cannot escape, places where there are walls that you can't get out of, well, we're talking about a prison camp at this point, folks. And that's what East Germany was. It was a prison camp long before the wall even went up. And when it came down, well, what a story that was. Peter Wolf's story, and in a way, so many refugees of that time here on our American Stories.